We are finishing out our Exodus series this morning. I have loved taking this journey with you. Hopefully for many of you in the church body, it has been an encouragement or a challenge for you to be reading Scripture yourself, to be studying all of Scripture, not just the stories of Jesus that we love or the best parts of Paul's letters, but the entirety of Scripture to see that it shares one story, one direction, one narrative about God's work from Genesis to Revelation. And as we've looked at Exodus, hopefully we've taken some stories that you might be familiar with, so much so that we've put them on the back shelf and pulled them back out to see the power of what they speak about our lives today. I'll walk through our first five weeks, and then we're going to dive into our final message this morning. We began Exodus with a look at it as a model of how to read Scripture. If you remember, if you were with us, it is a model of how to read it, which is creation, enslavement, freedom, and renewal. Can you repeat that back with me? Ready? On three. Creation, enslavement, freedom, and renewal. Great. All right. Awesome. Hopefully, maybe some of you, that's a new little tool in your pocket that you use when you're reading Scripture, and you're reading somewhere in Hosea, and you're like, where do I see creation or, or freedom, enslavement, or renewal? How do I see it working out here? You're reading Jude, and it's really weird and poetic, and you're trying to put it into that framework. That is a running, what we call a meta-narrative of how to read Scripture. Second, we see that God partners with broken humanity. He partners with Moses when Moses is at his lowest moment, and it has nothing to do with Moses' qualities. And when Moses says, I'm not good enough, God says, yeah, you're right, you're probably not, but I am good enough for the both of us, and I am choosing you. Lean into my qualities as you serve me and partner with me. Third, we talked about a God who covers his people with his own blood who sets us free by his own sacrifice, by his own work in Passover, the 10 plagues, and a look forward to Jesus as the ultimate Passover lamb. We talked about God's provision, both in the miraculous moment at an altar, salvation, and God's provision in the mundane of manna in the wilderness or our daily bread every day that he provides. Last week, we talked about a God who provides order in freedom or freedom by order in the Ten Commandments, Him meeting His people, giving us a way to live life. Not that we are saved by this, but we are already saved. And how do we continue to live in that salvation and freedom? God gives us a good, better way to live as a community. Now, final, our sixth week, we're going to talk about what is the purpose of all of this? Why rescue Israel? Why set us free? Why the miracles and the Red Sea and Sinai and all of this? What is the purpose? Is it just to be free in the modern world today? And a lot of people who have gone through their own doubts and deconstruction of their faith, they often get to that conclusion, well, it's just to be free so I can be myself, so I can explore myself and find freedom. But that the purpose of Scripture, the purpose of Exodus, the purpose of God's freedom is not just to be free, but is to know who God is and to be known by Him in relationship. The goal of all of Exodus and all the miracles and the blood and the provision is so that the one who made us could be known by us and could deeply know and love who we are. 
We see this in Exodus chapter 34. Hopefully you got your little note sheet on your way in here. And I just want to start you off with a question, a little primer for yourself. And Alyssa already has you thinking about writing down as you're working and hearing God's voice. I just have one question for you. When you think about God, what characteristics come to your mind? Who is He for you? What has He done? What makes Him God? What has been your experience with Him? What makes Him God in your life? Just one sentence, one thought. What is that? A little primer this morning. As you think about that, we will turn to the Scriptures and we will see what God declares about Himself and His knowability in Exodus 34. Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7. The Scriptures read, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, Yahweh, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parent upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Uh, there's a, a viral video, but it's a little dated that's gone around on social media now, on TikTok and maybe in some of your reels. And it is an interview of Questlove, the leader of the influential R&B group, The Roots, that also is the band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And Questlove has become this larger-than-life character of representing, I don't know, music and culture and even what it means to be African-American in the U.S. in the modern day. It's an interview about his past and his history. And they're talking kind of with the board that runs Ellis Island and uh, Statue of Liberty and all immigration and talking to him about one thing they found in doing research on his family line, his name is not actually Questlove, and what's the Questlove family origin, but where do you come from? Who are you? Who is your family? And if you're African American in the United States, it's often harder to understand because of some of the tragic nature of our history. Your family may not have come here by choice, may not have had the same name as you came over here with. And Questlove finds this, and they said, one fascinating thing we discovered about your family and your history is that your family came over on the very last slave ship to ever come over to the United States, the very last one your family and your great-great-grandfather came over on. He said, I didn't know that. You see him for a moment, about 10 seconds of kind of silence, emotional processing of what that means for who he is, what his family has been, how he understands himself as he discovers a bit of his history his own name, his identity of what's been passed down to him. It's impactful to know who we are and where we come from. We don't live in the modern U.S. and all of us kind of jamming together into this melting pot often understand the history that comes with our names of who we are and where it comes from. I'm Lane, so I assume somewhere in my family somebody worked on streets or was a street sweeper or made them, was English, I guess. We don't normally think about our names, our identities, and our histories this way, of what makes us who we are, where we come from, the generations before us. In Scripture, names are incredibly significant, powerful, and tell stories. Abram, name in Hebrew means father. For someone who becomes a father of many nations and his name is changed 
to Abraham, which means father of many nations. We think of Isaac in Scripture, whose name literally translates to laughter because his parents laughed when God said in their later years, geriatric years of life, that they would have a child. They laughed, and it's that famous passage where God says, Sarah, you laughed, and she says, no, I didn't, and God says, yes, you did, and there's this weird petty back and forth between God and Sarah over whether she laughed or not. Jacob's name means to grasp. He gets changed to Israel, which means one to wrestle with God. Similar names, but now with a more significant purpose. Ancient names tell a story about who a person is. So in Exodus 34, Moses asked God, who are you? I want to know a bit more of you. I know this was revealed in Exodus 3 when Moses asked, what's your name? God tells him his name is Yahweh. But in Exodus 34, he's like, we've been spending this time together. I've been coming up and down this mountain with you, and I've been trying to represent your people, and it's been a little tense. So could you just give me a little bit more of who are you? Can I just see you? Just see a little bit of you. Know you a little bit more. We see that the more time Moses has spent with God, the more he wants to know who God truly is and longs for him. And God reveals himself to Moses in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, which we just read. Exodus 34, 6 and 7, if you don't know, is also the most quoted passage of Scripture by Scripture. This passage, these two verses, for the entirety of the rest of the Bible, you can find dozens, if not hundreds, of references, direct quotes, allusions to this passage over and over again. We're going to look at it in four basic parts of what God says. The first is that God says, Yahweh, Yahweh, his own name, Y-H-W-H. Says, God has a name. First thing we learn about God as we discover who he is is that he's knowable. He has a name that we can know. He is a person that we can discover and have relationship with. God is knowable. He says, my name is Yahweh. He has a name. He is knowable, relational, a person. As if Moses is saying, God, well, who are you and who do I tell your people you are? And he goes, my name is Kevin. Go tell them Kevin is leading them now. And he's like, all right, great, Kevin. I'm going to go down and I'm going to tell them that. But Yahweh means so much more than just our modern use of names. Yahweh means I am who I am. I am who I have always been. I am the only uncreated being. I am faithful and consistent. I am true to who I always have been. I am unchanging. God's name means a lot about who he is. Tell them, if they want to know, that I am the consistent and never-changing God. I am always faithful. Like saying to someone, When they ask who you are and you're like, well, I'm a nice guy, but I'm not always nice. Don't walk over me. I'm a good guy, but I have my edge. It's not what God is saying. He's saying, I am the same person I've always been and I always will be. If I tell you something about myself, if I reveal my character to you, if I give you a promise, you can know that unlike other humans and how you promise and what you say about yourselves, I will always be that way. You can stand on my promises. You can rest in my character. It is not ever changing like the sands. My character is a rock that you can build on. We have been shocked 
in our lives by someone that we thought we knew who turned out to be someone we didn't think they were. They were not the person that we thought they were. Actually, your friend is wanted by the police. Oh my gosh, I did not know that about them. Maybe he shouldn't have babysat our kids last weekend. Actually, they've been telling you a lie about who they are. Your boss at work gets called up for insider trading. Actually, your husband has not been honest to you about his past and about his other relationships. You get older and you discover your parents are more complex than you thought that they were. And you were like, wow, you liked Rush as a kid? You're much cooler than I thought you were. They become someone else. God's name means that He is not changing, that we can rest assured and at peace of knowing who He is. And that the moment he first revealed himself to us, yes, we can discover more complexity. We can discover more beauty and richness to who he is, but it will always be in the vein of the same person he always has been. This is important when you are Moses and you have convinced hundreds of thousands of your people to change their entire life, location, stability in order to move to a new land by this voice from a burning bush that you met on a mountain. Important to be able to say, people, as we move our entire lives, as we change our identity of who we are, as we move from stability into instability, you can trust that the God that we are following is going to be faithful. That he will be the same God who rescued us out of Egypt, will be the same God that meets us in the promised land. That when we say that prayer in a moment of vulnerability, God, you better pull through. I took this risk and you better be on the other side of it. God, I am stepping out in faith and I hope that you are still that same God that met me 5, 10, 40 years ago. I hope that you are, that we can rest assured he is. It is in the very nature of his character and his name. He is who he always has been. He is faithful and true. So God's name, Yahweh, literally means consistent, trustworthy God. He is consistent. We can trust him. He fulfills his promises. It also means that he is knowable. He is not a vague idea, a concept a philosophy in the sky to which we place all of our mysteries and unknowable nature of the world into an amorphous concept of who God may or may not be. This is often the view of Eastern spirituality. That in Scripture, we have a God who can be known, who has a personality, who is relatable, has emotion, and can be known. This is important as we now discover the rest of His personality. Next, he now says, he is full of compassion and mercy. When you read Hebrew poetry, when you read Hebrew scripture, there are a few rules and principles to how to read it. The first is that when something is repeated, like Yahweh, Yahweh, that is an important truth and kind of putting its stamp on what he's saying, that this is true, that this is important. Second, they often write in hierarchical order, in the same way that we kind of do left to right, The first things that God is declaring about himself are the most true about him. He is knowable and he has a name that is most true. He is a person who cares and has feelings, thoughts, and is discoverable. Second, more than any of the rest of what we learn, he is full of compassion and mercy. But that is a defining characteristic of who God is. Like a parent who cares about his children, 
God has compassion and mercy for His people, for us. It is difficult for us to understand because we use Father as we talk about God and Jesus taught us to pray, God, Father, but God is both Father and Mother. He is both the one who leads us and sets the example. He is both the tender one who embraces us into His presence. As God says to Moses in Exodus 3, He now reminds in Exodus 34, I am a compassionate God who is moved by the suffering of humanity. I am compassionate. God feels. He feels the weight of all the burdens that you carry. When you pray that prayer that's vulnerable and shaky, when you pray that prayer that is angry and accusatory, that we know that God is a God whose heart is moved by the emotion of His people. He is movable. He is emotional. He receives our needs. He cares about what happens in this world. He is deeply invested in His creation and in His people. I love the passage Jesus declares because it's so contrary to how we often pray. When Jesus reveals about Himself in Matthew 23, verse 37, He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and yet you were not willing. That the character of God is one like a mother hen who desires to take her fragile chicks and gather them close into her body, to feel the warmth of her body, to feel the embrace, to know who we are, to make us safe and to feel safe and protected and cared for, that this is a nature of who God is, that He has compassion and emotion to know us and be known by Him. Second, He's compassionate and He's merciful. His compassion means that He feels. Compassion is a feeling word. He's merciful means that He takes action. Mercy is an action word. He does. He doesn't just feel in heaven and when you're struggling down there, he's up there and he's going, I feel so much of what you feel, but I can do nothing about it. Let's both cry together and hopefully it works out. No, he says, I feel it and I am the God who takes action to heal it, redeem it, fix it, correct it, to guide it, to set it free. He is a God that takes action. Luke chapter 15, there are several stories that Jesus tells about who God is and what He's like. He says, God is like a woman who loses a coin. He searches all over. She searches all over for the coin. And when she finds it, she celebrates and invites all her friends back for a party. It's kind of irrational. It doesn't make good economic sense. But he says, God is so excited to know you that this is the sort of irrational love that he has. There's another story of he's like a shepherd that loses a sheep and he has 99 of them, but one has wandered away and he leaves the 99. He goes out. He finds the one. He rushes through the bramble. He takes nicks on his body. He has blood coming out of him as he goes through thorn bushes in order to find the sheep and carry it back on his shoulders. And then he celebrates finding that sheep. Oftentimes that celebration would have involved the sacrifice of a sheep. So again, irrational, but excited and passionate in going and finding us. And then finally, he tells the most famous of the stories of two brothers, one who wastes all of his inheritance and goes out and is hungry and is poor and wanders back. And the father, seeing him a long way off, runs to meet him, embrace him, and welcome him back into the family. 
Jesus is telling us the same thing that Yahweh is telling in Exodus 34, is that one of the characteristics of God is not just that He cares, but that He takes action out of His care in order to mercifully restore His people back to Him. Wherever you are in your life, however you currently are experiencing your own life and creation and the disappointment that comes from being a human, God is there, and when we pray to Him, He takes action to respond to the cries of our people. He does not stand far away, but He presses in and takes action. He is compassionate and merciful. Third, he says about himself that he is slow to anger. The actual Hebrew translation I love is that he has long nostrils. His nose is very big. His nostrils are very long. Obviously, you would hear that. You think of maybe Gonzo from the Muppets. That's immediately what I think of. And you say, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he's patient. Yeah, we've got a really big nose. He's patient. doesn't make sense to us. Unless you have ever been around somebody who you have deeply annoyed. And what sound do they make when they are deeply annoyed? We blow it out, right? Or whenever you see like a classic cartoon from the 1940s and there's steam shooting out as they're just frustrated and angry, what he's saying is God has such a long nose that when he blows his steam of frustration out of himself, it takes a really long time. He is a teapot with a very long spout. Takes him a long time to kind of burst out. Another way of just saying he is incredibly patient. Sure, he has anger because he cares about justice, but he's incredibly patient in the expression of his anger. I like did something to myself when I breathed that long breath out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're on live stream and you had to hear that. It is also important that of the three we have just looked at, anger is the last mentioned. Not the first, it's the last. So it means his anger is colored by the context of the fact that he is knowable and he is consistent. His anger is colored by the context that he is merciful and compassionate. Proverbs 14.29 says it like this, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding. But he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. The author of Proverbs also says it like this later on. Proverbs 16. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. To be patient and kind is not the same as to be weak. I have friends who have revealed to me foolishly, and if you're watching this, I know that you know that I know, that when they play a board game, sometimes they may elevate their emotions artificially because they know it gives them an advantage over other people who may feel bad for them. That if I'm angry, other people are non-confrontational, and so if I'm angry at Catan, they will trade me more of their wheat than really I deserve from my lumber, but I've showed emotion, and so I get an advantage. Or I get really upset, and I'm really struggling here, so that you then take pity on me in the game, and I get an advantage. We can often think that the outright display of our emotions, our anger, our frustration, gets us an advantage in life. It makes us stronger. People are scared of me. 
because I'm angry. I get what I want because I push it forward strategically and aggressively. What Scripture says, no, if you have only mastered the most simple and easy of emotions, which is anger, you're not strong, you're weak. True strength is to move past that external demonstration into the patience that comes with knowing our emotions and yet being able to submit them for the betterment of the people around us. God is not looking to zap you. Depending on maybe the church circumstance you grew up in, God is not lurking around every corner watching your life ready to judge you, punish you, or push you away. That is not who he is, and it is not how he feels and thinks about you. He is constantly watching you, rooting for you to make the right decision, rooting for you to act out of love and compassion. And when you don't, he is compassionate, and he is merciful, and he has very long nostrils of patience for you. God is slow to anger. Some of us need to hear that and have that sentence emphasized that way. God is slow to anger. Relax. He loves you. He cares for you. Others of us may need to hear the sentence this way. God is slow to anger. And he does care about justice. And he does care about the order of his world. And that we have a whole center portion of scripture that we know as the major and minor prophets where God is expressing the fact that he does care when his people are taken advantage of, are hurt, and injustice is used. And honestly, it is not a punishment to see or a fear to see that God has anger, but it is an incredible encouragement to us that we have a God who is angered by injustice. Psalm chapter 7 verse 11 says that God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. The things that make us mad about when life is unfair and unjust, they make God mad as well. Psalm 11, verses 5 and 6 say, The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked. He hates those who love violence. He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur onto the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. God hates? Or maybe we might say, okay, well, that's the Old Testament God, and the Old Testament God is vengeful and angry and cruel, but then Jesus comes, and Jesus is a lamb, and he's cuddly, and he's gentle, and he's never angry. But we see John 3.16, the most famous passage in the New Testament, perhaps all of Scripture, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Yes, kind, loving, compassionate, merciful. But we don't know that 20 verses later in that same chapter of John 3, 36 says, and anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. That's Jesus, y'all. He's saying this. It would be a disservice to eternity, to creation, to the character of God himself, if he was not a God who was angered by injustice and suffering. I don't want a God that doesn't care at all. As the Incredibles say, if everything is important, nothing is. If God is never mad at anything, then what does it matter at all? That God does care about the order of our world. 
But here's what's important. God's anger is different from mine. He is not angry the same way that we get angry. He is slow to anger, and he is patient. My anger is usually due to a wounded ego or to an expression of selfishness. I didn't get what I wanted, and I'm frustrated by that. Or someone doesn't see me in the same way that I see myself, and I am angry about that. Our anger is self-focused most of the time. I didn't get treated the way I thought I should have gotten treated. I didn't get the reward I thought I should have gotten or the promotion I should have gotten or the love and affection I should have gotten or the time off I thought I should have gotten. My anger is almost always unjust and selfish most of the time. My anger is from a wounded ego. God's anger is just and selfless. God's anger is others-focused, is externally focused, is about bringing order back to the world. God is upset when the world is not working as it should out of love, mercy, and compassion. God's anger is not about himself, but about his people and how they are treated. As if the anger for a wounded child, when you see a child hurt unfairly, the anger of an elderly person being abused or taken advantage of, the anger of the poor being exploited and used. That is the anger of God when vulnerable people are taken advantage of. In short, and it's in your notes, God's anger equals His unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, and steadfast confrontation to evil in all of its form. That's God's anger is a demonstration that he will never accept or allow evil to triumph in this world and in our lives, now and for eternity. It is why this same passage ends with, Psalm, with Exodus 34, 7, where it talks about his justice and his anger being to generation after generation after generation. We read that passage and we go, that doesn't seem like a loving God that would do that. But the other way God would say that is, I will never stop until I have rid evil completely from my people, until I have completely set you free from the sin and evil and shame that dominates this world. I will work it through you. I will work it through your children. I will work it through the next generation until it has completely been eradicated by my love and grace. Maybe some of you need to hear that God is slow to anger and you need that relief to know that he is compassionate. Maybe some of you need to know that God does get angry and has expectations on loving order to our world. But whatever it is, it is all then brought up into the context of his reminding statement following that he is abounding in love and faithfulness. As Psalm 89, the psalmist writes, I will sing of the, loves, of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make your faithfulness known to all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. I will declare your faithful love and kindness. The Hebrew has a difficult word that's used here in Exodus 34. It's also used in the Ten Commandments we looked at last week in Exodus 19. It is a word called hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. Hesed is a Hebrew word 
that we most often translate as a weird combination of two words because the translators were like, I can't even fully represent it. And so it's this weird mashup word that you may see or in your small groups may have seen loving kindness just jammed together. Both words as one word doesn't make grammatical sense. But that's the translator saying it's, it's such a big word that we don't even have accurate English descriptions for what the Hebrews meant when they said God was hesed, that God valued hesed. God was loving kindness. It's love that's faithful. It's love that says, I'm going to love you regardless of external circumstances, regardless of what happens. You can rest in my love and know that my love will be there today, tomorrow, and the next day. No matter what you do, my love will be there and will continue to be abundant for you. That my love is slow and patient, that will be with you all throughout your life from generation to generation. My love is patiently waiting to work out this relationship. Has said loving kindness. One commentator says even that they believe the Greek didn't have the best words for it either. The closest we get is the Greek word of agape, which is selfless motherly love. But that for the Apostle Paul, that didn't even clearly represent what Hesed was. And so he spent all of 1 Corinthians 13, an entire chapter in a letter, trying to describe what the Hebrew authors meant when they said Hesed talks about what love is, what love isn't, how overabounding it is, and he gave us lots of resources for our weddings to have some cousin read while we're going through our matrimony vows, right? 1 Corinthians 13, that that is how big the word has said is, that God practices love and kindness. Love that patiently takes a long time to fulfill its promises. John 1, 14 says of this loving kindness. So the word became human and made its home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. He was full of hesed. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Which brings us to our last point, that the journey is not about freedom alone, The journey is the freedom to know God and be known by Him. That this is the story of Exodus. It is not the story of a people rescued out of slavery. It is not the story of one man who got it together and was able to become an important figure. It is not the story of God performing miracles and clouds by day and fire by night and parting seas. It is the story of a God who made humanity and wants to be known by them and to know them deeply. God rescued Israel from Egypt so that they could be known by Him and so that they could know who He is. Jesus Christ came and made His home among us and brought His love and kindness among us, not just to set us free from sin and shame. Jesus Christ did not die and resurrect just so that we would live forever. He did it so that we could be known by the God who made us and know Him forever. That the entirety of Scripture is centered around a relationship with a God who is knowable, merciful and compassionate, full of loving kindness, values justice to every generation and wants to be experienced and known by His people. Some of us just want to skip to the end. 
I just want to be saved so that I know I'm not going to go to hell. I just want to give my life to Jesus so God's not mad at me. I just want to know that I'm a good person. Or we make all of our Christian life about experiences, one moment, one decision, one experience, rather than about a relationship that is there for us to sit in, to discover, to know and experience. That God the Father provided for us Christ the Son so that we could sit in our lives in the presence of God the Spirit who is knowable and experienceable and hearable and receivable in all of our lives as a reminder that this is what eternity will be, knowing God and being known by Him, sitting in His presence and speaking to Him. We have that opportunity today to know God and be known by Him. It is the call and purpose of our life. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord isn't really slow about His promises, as we may think. No, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but He wants everyone to repent. He wants everyone to know Him. He wants everyone to turn towards His way of justice and life and value. We are a people, a society, a culture of speed. It's got to be fast. One comedian had said, the DMV is painful because we go there and it's like 45 seconds, 45 minutes, and in the future, everything's going to be like a half a second and a second, but the DMV will still be like four seconds, and we'll be like, I can't stand this four seconds. I had a computer growing up, and it was impressive that it would boot up in about five minutes, and I could get on AOL after the computer screamed at me for some weird reason out of the modem, and then I could load a page in five minutes and see something and chat with somebody with a delay of just 15 minutes. And now I have my phone in my pocket, and if it hesitates for a half a second, I'm like, the world is ending. I can't take it. But that the God who has made us has made us with a certain pace, a relational pace. No great friendship, no great relationship, no great romantic story has ever been short and quick. It is slow and it is long and it marinates to create something beautiful. This is the relationship that God wants with us. It's why he brought his people into the wilderness for 40 years, not just as a punishment, but as a way to know them and to be known by them. He has a call for each of us to be known by Him and to know Him. But it takes time. We are entering in to the greatest tool we have every year of time in the Lenten season. You may have grown up totally evangelical or Pentecostal in the AG, and you may not have grown up with the practice of Lent or Ash Wednesday or Holy Week or any of that verbiage. I didn't grow up with it. And I have found it as God's tool to me to counteract my constant speed and force me to slow down. During Lent, as a church body, we will ask you every week starting next Tuesday, not this Tuesday, to fast for 24 hours. I'm going to just rip the Band-Aid off now. The first two weeks, you're going to hate it. Not going to like it at all. 
That's kind of the point. We're detoxing from our addiction to speed and rapidity and easiness, to lean into something that is maybe not easy, but is so very good and worth it. We'll challenge you at our Ash Wednesday service, what's something that you want to let go of in this season of Lent? Many of us will always choose social media. Very good. Yes, do it. Great. Awesome. Maybe something else in your life, maybe the way you eat or maybe the way you engage your relationships or music or media. But we will take time to sit in the presence of God and we will take time because he is so very good when we know him. That he is consistently knowable. He is compassionate and merciful. He is just and he is full of loving kindness. If you bow your heads with me this morning. If you're in the room today and you do not consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I want to give you a chance to pray that prayer, to take a step forward of welcoming Jesus into your life as Savior and as Lord. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is an opportunity just to recollect, to renew, to remind. Pray with me. God, I want to know you as you have made me knowable, that I am made in your image, that you are like me and different from me, and I want to know who you are. I want to experience your presence. As Moses said, I want to experience your presence, God. We want to experience who you are. And in this moment, I believe the best way to experience you is through your son, Christ Jesus. And that Jesus, I believe that you lived on this earth 33 years, perfect and righteous and loving kindness and true. And that instead of receiving a reward, you took our punishment, our sin, our shame onto your own shoulders. I believe that you bore the weight of my death on the cross. And that on the third day you rose from the grave, conquering it eternally and forever by the power of love and mercy and surrender. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today I commit my life to follow you. I confess my sin. I repent of my own way. And I submit myself to your leadership and lordship. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you can stand with me all over the room. We want to close out and just create and embrace some of that space this morning. As Alyssa led us earlier, if during that exercise of Philippians 2, you felt like God spoke something to the church body, our prayer team will be up here on my right and on my left. I will be up here. You can bring that card of what you felt like God spoke. Hand it to us. We would love to pray through that. Make space of sharing that to our church body. But I want to give you a moment today of saying, God, like Moses, I want to see you, I want to experience you, I want to know you. The altar space will be open. The altar space is not magic. God doesn't live here. But this is a place where we declare it's a space we meet. That God, you take the step forward to know me. I'm going to take a physical step forward to show you, God, I want to know you. I want to be with you this morning. And our prayer team will be up here to pray with you if you want someone to lay a hand on you and pray with you and assist you in that process. The worship team's gonna lead in one final song. I encourage you just press into the presence of God this morning. 
lean into who he is and who he has revealed himself to you to be this morning. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen, that's your cue. Move out of your seats, respond in worship, and we'll respond to God's presence this morning. Lord, we welcome you into this place this morning. We believe that by your spirit, you are here. And that like the Israelites who were gathered around your presence in Mount Sinai, we are gathered around your presence communally this morning. That you are here and you are knowable. May we lean into your presence and hear from you as we are gathered this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.